Hello, and welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. My name is Joseph, and today I had a great privilege of talking to Dr. Lasana Harris. Dr. Harris is a professor of social neuroscience and experimental psychology at University College London. He got his undergraduate degree from Howard University and his PhD from Princeton University. His research uses a social neuroscience approach to explore the neurocorrelates of person perception, prejudice, dehumanization, anthropomorphism, social learning, social emotions, empathy, and punishment. He published a book in 2017 titled Invisible Minds, Flexible Social Cognition, and Dehumanization. In today's chat, Dr. Harris shares his exciting ideas about how to combat social bias. He addresses questions like, when is it useful to make a situational versus a dispositional attribution? What are the differences between social and personality psychology? And in the end, he provides some insightful advice for young academics entering psychology. We hope you enjoy. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris, for joining me for this conversation today. No problem. Today, we're going to talk about this research article titled Leveraging Cultural Narratives to Promote Trade Inferences Rather Than Stereotype Activation During Person Perception. It looks like this is more of a theory paper or an opinion or review piece, which, at least for me, is pretty interesting because I know that recently people have been talking about this theory crisis that we have where people focus too much on producing small effects rather than building robust theories or at least consolidating the ones that we have in the past. So I thought that this was like really neat that this is the theory building that we need in the field at least. And in particular, you're presenting this provoking new way to think about this process of what you call person perception, which is very succinctly summarized in this MLK quote at the beginning. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Yeah. So Dr. Harris, what is this concept of person perception you're talking about? What are the different moving parts? Or even, yeah, if you'd like just to give a, some context into how you came upon these questions. Sure. Um, I think what you said at the beginning is really important and that in psychology, we're a field of many theories. So everybody makes a theory post hoc to explain their effects, or at least that tends to be the standard mode of operation. And I remember as a graduate student, I read a paper by Elliot Aronson from like the 1980s or 90s, where he was complaining about exactly this. Um, and it made an impression on me because it suggested that an alternate approach is to develop a theory and then build a research program around it where you're testing the theory. And that's kind of the approach I've taken. So this paper isn't really based on a novel theory per se. It's related to a theory that I've been developing for about the last 10 or 15 years. And that theory is, is what we call flexible social cognition theory. So the theory goes very simply. It says that um, as human beings, when we encounter other people, the traditional view is that we spontaneously get inside of their heads or think about their minds. So we try to figure out their thoughts, their feelings, their personality, et cetera. And what we've been saying is that we don't think that's quite what happens. We think what happens is, as human beings, we have the ability to get inside of people's heads, but we don't do it all of the time. And so this ability to get inside people's heads, which is what we call social cognition, that's flexible. And so the theory that we've developed in this paper really starts from that place. It says, okay, let's really consider this flexible social cognition theory. And what does that mean then for person perception and stereotyping? Now, our flexibility idea is more than just simply whether I engage social cognition or not. Flexibility for us is a catch-all term that includes three separate parts. The first part is the simple withholding or extension. And that sort of covers a lot of the dehumanization work we've done and a lot of the anthropomorphism work we're doing currently. The second part of flexibility is what we call multiple probable attributions. So it's basically the idea that when I encounter other people, there are multiple inferences or ideas I can have about what's going on inside of their heads. 
And what we end up doing is sort of picking one and going with that inference. And that's really where the theory in this paper sort of grows out of. So what we're arguing this paper is that this, the traditional way of thinking about place and perception, which simply means how I think about other people, how I react to people when I encounter them. The traditional view is that we encounter another person and then we spontaneously think about their social group membership and that triggers stereotypes. So it makes stereotypes an automatic reaction that we have in the presence of other people. And these traditional theories go on to say, once we've stereotyped, if we have the motivation to learn more about the person, if we have the additional information available, and to that I would add, if we have the cognitive resources, we move beyond the stereotype to what's typically called individuation, which is understanding the person as that unique full human being. So what we came along and said, based on this idea of flexible social cognition and multiple probable attributions is that, well, perhaps what happens instead is when we encounter another person, instead of just the stereotype, there are lots of other attributions that we have in our heads. But the problem is that we live in a society and in a culture where the stereotype information is super, super important. And so instead of going with some other kind of individuating inference, something about their personality, something unique to that person, we instead rely on the stereotype. And we've learned to do this over time. And so when we encounter other people, we, it looks like we're automatically stereotyping, not because that's actually what we're doing, but we're demonstrating a learned behavior. Because in our society, social group membership really matters. Now, that isn't to say that there are societies where social group membership doesn't matter because we're human beings and we categorize, but the particular social group memberships that we've talked a lot about in psychology around race and gender in particular are ones that in most Western societies mattered for legal reasons, right? There were laws about what you can do with people of different races or ethnicities, what you can do with people of different genders. And so those particular categories became really, really important. And so our cultural narrative, therefore, is you think about people based on their race and gender. So when I see somebody in the street, race and gender come to mind, not because it's all that's there, but because it's what our society values and we've learned to value over time. And so in this paper, we argue that, well, given that there are other stuff there, perhaps it's possible instead to draw a trait attribution, for instance. And a trait attribution simply means thinking about their personality. So when you meet your mother, you don't rely on the stereotypes because it's your mother, right? You go directly to that trait information about who she is as a human being. So for highly familiar people, we already do this, right? So the question is, can we do this for strangers? Can we spontaneously get inside the heads of strangers and pull out trait information that is not necessarily related to a stereotype? Now, there is evidence we can do this. There's a huge literature in social psychology called spontaneous trade inference literature, which demonstrates exactly this. So in these studies, you show people a picture of another person and you give them a sentence about something they've done. So John helped an old lady across the street. And spontaneously, people come up with inferences, right? John is kind. John is generous. Nobody in those paradigms are going to the stereotype. They're not saying John is male, therefore he isn't likely to be kind. They're not saying John is of this particular race or ethnicity. They're using that behavior and they're directly going to the trade inference. So for us, that was evidence that it's possible to do this, even with people who aren't highly familiar, so people that might be strangers. And so in this paper, we really argue that what's going to help us overcome stereotyping isn't just waiting for the stereotypes to change, which they often do in society, but changing the things that are important when we encounter other people, right? We no longer live in the Jim Crow era where race matters for what side of the counter you can sit on when you're having lunch or whether you sit at the back of the bus or not, right? What really matters in the era in which we live or what really should matter is the content of the character, right? Who is this person as a unique human being? And given that we have the ability to do this just as easily as we can stereotype, let's try to promote that instead. And so that's essentially what the paper is about. Yeah, thank you for that really useful way to summarize everything. Yeah, there's so many moving parts in what you've said and, and so many possible lines of thought to explore. 
so you talk about stereotypes and prejudice these two specifically and do you i think there's a sentence where you you say at the core of systemic racism are cognitive and affective responses to people of color stereotypes and prejudice respectively so there is this notion that stereotypes are this cognitive response and then prejudice on the other hand is an affective response i guess maybe i'm not too familiar with the literature on this but i was curious why is it that people think of prejudice as an affective response or how does that come into the equation when you are perceiving someone is it that you you don't just form a representation of who they are but you also have some emotional reaction or something or or where do you think this affective component comes in yeah that's a great question i think in psychology we've separated cognition and affect so thoughts and emotions when in reality those things aren't very separate So I think we separate them so we could better study them so it's more of a theoretical separation but every time I have an emotion there's thought behind it and every time I have a thought there's emotion that comes along so it's really a chicken and egg type of a problem so the idea is that the stereotype is going to trigger an emotional response right so if i have a stereotype that stereotype has information about it which is why it's useful right so i stereotype men as um courageous let's say right stereotype woman is um meek and mild um that's going to bring an emotional response if i think of encountering somebody who's meek and mild or courageous or pick your favorite stereotype and so those things come together so they're not necessarily separate and so in psychology what we've done is because we've separated them we have this cognitive affective behavior triangle right so there's cognition there's emotion or affect and then there's behavior and if you take that to the the social bias domain that stereotyping prejudice and discrimination so it is a way of sort of allowing us to pass these different concepts i often tell people who aren't psychologists psychologists are really good at sort of narrowing in on a specific mental process right we tear things as far apart as we can tear them apart because that's what we're in the business of doing and so we separate cognitive and affect but as a theoretical separation when we encounter people both things are going to co-occur we know prejudice is an emotional response because we've done a lot of brain imaging studies over the last 20 years that have identified brain regions associated with emotional processing as being engaged when people have prejudice or bias responses and we're very terrible with our terminology in psychology as well mm. so we often conflate prejudice and bias when they're slightly different things bias means the entire cognitive affective behavior triad so we know in the brain that prejudice has this emotional component it's amygdala dependent which is the seat of emotion in the brain we also know that stereotyping is cognitively dependent right the thoughts you have the ideas you have about other people and of course in psychology we're really good at designing experiments that can separate those things right so we can give you experiments where you're just going to have to rely on the thoughts or ideas or stereotypes and others where you're going to have more of an emotional response and the the stereotypes live in sort of the social cognition brain network which is this neocortical network of regions involved in all kinds of higher order thought so we have this theoretical separation there's sort of brain separation as well but again in reality those things are interacting right so i could encounter somebody that triggers an emotional response and that leads me to a particular stereotype so let's say i'm walking down a dark alley at night and i see someone coming to me and i get a slight fear response i may automatically categorize that person as african american let's say because that's consistent with the stereotype of who's threatening in my society only to then realize as i get closer to the person or oh, they're not african american at all there's something else um similarly if i have the thought that i'm about to meet somebody who is of a particular social group the stereotype becomes active and that triggers an emotional response as well so we've separated them but i don't think it's a real separation so because it's a theoretical separation what we've done is taken advantage of that and said well if we can change your cognitive component if we get you to not stereotype you shouldn't have the prejudice and that's really important because we know that the emotional component of these responses is really what's driving the behavior and i'm all about changing behavior right so i want to get rid of the discrimination that's what i care about most is discrimination because that's what affects people's lives. And so looking at the cognitions and the emotions is a way of getting us to sort of change the behavior. 
Yeah, another thing that I was thinking about is the comments you just made recently on social categories. So you did mention that certain social categories are treated as more canonical or we focus more on them when we're activating certain stereotypes. So race, gender, age, or social class, which is interesting because, yeah, people tend to belong to multiple different social groups or you could categorize them as being belonging to multiple different social groups. Like I'm a skater, I'm a resident of Palo Alto, I love plants. So yeah, but then people tend to default to a certain set of social groups that are canonical and you've sort of given an explanation for that. Some historical context of the country could lead to that. I think also in the paper you talked about whether or not something is salient. I also liked this evolutionary sort of story that you gave for how people could evolve to rely on social groups. Uh, I don't know whether you want to elaborate that for our listeners, because I found that really interesting and that helped me make sense of why we tend to rely on social categories today. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So there's a view, or there used to be a view that stereotypes are a bad thing. Um, And I never really shared that view because I don't really think of psychological constructs as good or bad. I think they get used for good or bad reasons, right? But there are lots of stereotypes that are positive, for instance, right? Like athlete, there's negative components to that stereotype. People usually think you're stupid, Um, but there's positive components, right? You have this sort of physical prowess that other people don't have. So stereotypes just have information, right? And stereotypes and categorization, because stereotypes is just categorizing people. So categorization is really important because our world is super complex. So as we go through the world, right, if you live in a very urban environment, for instance, you might see 200 different faces a day. If you had to take the time to fully process all of those people as unique individuals, that's a lot of cognitive work because the the machinery in the brain that allows you to think about people's traits and personalities takes a lot of cognitive processing. It's a huge neocortical distributed network. So instead we rely on categories. So if I put people in categories, it brings with it all of that processing information that seemed expensive. And that's sort of the cognitive miser idea that's been in the field for quite some time. So Human beings are cognitive misers. We look for shortcut strategies of of thinking that allows us to get where we want to go quickly without putting in a lot of effort. Now, categorization on its own is not a bad thing. And I don't think we'll ever get rid of categorization. So human beings have to categorize, right? When I see a strange object, I need to put it into a category so I know how to interact with it. Um, So that thing that looks like it might be a chair, I need to know that it is a chair before I sit on it or else it won't support my weight. Right. So, and that happens in the social realm as well. When we encounter people, if I encounter a strange person, I need to be able to put that person in a category or so the argument goes. And that then gives me information about how to interact with them. But in your example, you highlighted something that we talked about in the paper as well. People belong to multiple different groups, right? Where um, we have a multitude of selves, as Walt Whitman said, right? So there's this idea that There are so many boxes I could put you into. And some of those categories are going to be preference-based categories, not necessarily social group categories. So like you said, you're a skater, right? That's a preference-based category. That has nothing to do with the traditional types of social groups that we think about. Anyone can be a skater, right? As long as you have a love and a passion and an interest in this particular thing. So there are ways of categorizing that are what I call trait-dependent, like skater. So when I see someone, I can look at how they're dressed and I can put them in a preference-based category. I can think that's a fashionista, look how fancy they're dressed. But that's not what we tend to do is the argument. Now, the evolutionary piece is really interesting. So what the evolutionary piece says is that if you look at the human brain, it evolved thousands of years ago. Humans thousands of years ago didn't live in places like Palo Alto or London, right? They lived in hunter-gatherer societies that were much smaller, maybe 150 people. Now, there was constant migration between these smaller groups of humans. So ever so often, you'd encounter a stranger, right? Somebody that wasn't in your group. And you'd have to make a decision about how to treat that stranger. Now, a stranger is a potential ally right? The whole reason we have migration is it helps diversify the genetic pool, we get stronger offspring. And they're a potential ally, right? Humans can 
engage in, in massive forms of cooperation that allow us to do grand things. But that person can also be dangerous. That person can also be a threat. And so you need a way of figuring out who's a friend and who's a foe. And here's where categorization comes in. So what the idea is, is that by default, we think, well, people in my in-group, they're going to be good. They're going to be friends, right? And any stranger, let's tag that person as a potential threat until we learn otherwise, right? And so if we follow through on that logic from our evolutionary history, we now live in huge societies with tons of different people, right? Um, way bigger than our brains evolved to deal with. And so we're going to end up relying on these shortcuts as ways of sort of passing our social will. And those shortcuts are going to come with some baggage, right? They're going to come with the in-group baggage. So they're going to come and say, if there's somebody who is a stranger who is unfamiliar, by default, I might treat that person negatively. Now, there's huge qualifications to this, right? There are big contextual effects. So if I go, for instance, to a speed dating scenario, they're all strangers, but I'm not going to treat them all as threatening, right? I've prepared myself psychologically to view them as welcoming. So, of course, these things are malleable as well. But the sort of default position is that this person can be threatening. And that now extends to outgroups. So if we've evolved with brains that have thought for thousands of years, any, anyone that's a stranger is potentially threatening, now outgroup members can occupy that space. And that's one of the reasons why you see the, the kinds of our group effects were so good at demonstrating in the psychology literature, right? Even in minimal group settings, if I make some arbitrary distinction, you still get biases against the outgroup. Now, those biases are focused on the in-group. It's really driven by in-group favoritism. But that difference in treatment of the two different types of people based on this arbitrary group membership suggests that we still have that evolutionary baggage in our brain. So we're doing the best we can, basically, with the, the machinery that we have. And that machinery is really old <laughs> and it's not really equipped to deal with modern human society. And I think that's one of the problem, the reasons we run into the kinds of problems that we see. So given we have that machinery, this predisposed bias towards judging our groups more harshly and more negatively, you now take that historical context and layer it on top of it. And it's easy to start seeing why we run into the problems that we do. I guess to keep this thought going, um, in the paper, you have this very useful visual representation of this, of the process that people engage in during person perception. So yeah, like you said earlier, you have this standard model where people tend to, first of all, default to this criterion of a stereotype or a social group, and then use that to infer the trait. Whereas in the argument you're making is that if we can just go directly to the trait inference, and yeah, this contrast between stereotypes and traits comes a lot throughout the paper. And I think at some point, I kind of find it a bit hard to tease out the distinction between the two. And I guess this is going to be a question about that. So um, you're arguing that we should use stereotypes less and traits more. So you go over reasons why traits are sort of, sort of underestimated as a useful guide for making inference about someone. So I'm just curious, I guess, to begin... Stereotypes rely on social groups, which is category type information. Is the idea that traits as well are category type knowledge and we are just, we're still relying on categories, except we're relying on different kinds of categories? Or is a trait something different entirely? I no, I think you've gotten it. I think you've gotten it. And that, I think, was one of the hardest points to articulate. So in my point of view, that's exactly it. Traits are a kind of category, like skater, like plant lover, right? They're preference-based categories. Stereotypes are social group-based categories. And in the literature, we haven't really done a good job of separating those two. So we've treated traits as if they're way more cognitively complex and way more effortful because they're not what people spontaneously report. So we have this bias where if somebody reports it spontaneously, because of dual process models, right? If somebody reports it spontaneously, it's automatic, which means it's easy to bring to mind and you have all of the sort of horsemen of automaticity. But our dual process way of thinking, I think, has really led us astray in terms of our theorizing because it now causes us to treat traits as something very different. When to me, traits and stereotypes are very similar, right? They're all category information. If I label somebody as narcissistic, 
there's a whole bunch of information that comes along with that, right? I can begin to imagine what kind of job they're probably doing, what an interaction with them is going to be like, right? The kinds of things they're probably interested in. It gives me all the information that a stereotype would give. But we live in a society where traits aren't valued in that way, where we're not sort of encouraged to see people in that. And that was MLK's point, right? Like that's what he wanted to get to with his dream, right? To a place where instead of relying on the social category for that information, you just rely on the trait for that information, the person's preference. Because that's really what makes somebody a unique human being, right? My collection of preferences and category memberships is what makes me me. So there can be people in my category who have different preferences and people with my preferences who belong to different categories. None of them are me. That unique combination is what makes me me. And so that's exactly the point I think I was trying to put over in this paper. So I'm happy you picked up on it, right? If you look in the brain, they're the same structures. So if you look at what are the brain regions that are engaged when people stereotype, they look exactly like the brain regions engaged when people make trade inferences. And that's because cognitively in the brain, they're doing the same function, right? They're ways of organizing a bunch of information around the concept, their schematic representation. But we don't talk about it like that in the literature. And that's what I was trying to sort of highlight in this paper as well, that what I'm saying isn't impossible because we know cognitively and, and neurologically they're the same thing. So the question then is how do we push people to, instead of relying on the category, to go directly to the trait. So if you look at a news report, let's say somebody gets murdered in your neighborhood. The news reporters give us a bunch of category information, right? Which is perhaps useful if you're trying to find somebody, the category information might help you. But behavioral information is just as useful as well. So when the person's now arrested and we know something about them, now the category information is useless, right? Tell me about their preferences. Tell me about their character, the stuff that motivated them to engage in that behavior. Because that's ultimately what we care about, right? What motivates people to do what they do? Because that determines how we can interact with them, right? Who do we need to watch out for? Instead, what we do is we continue to hammer home the categories. And therefore, we get a very narrow and incomplete view of who the person is, and oftentimes inaccurate view, because we're just relying on stereotypes. And stereotypes are poor predictors of behavior, right? People don't behave like their stereotype. People behave like their traits, like their preferences, like their personality, like the things that make them who they are. So there's lots of arguments why we should take this different approach. Yeah, and thank you for that. That was very, very useful. So there's a section where at length you go into exploring how we acquire and represent category knowledge. So you, you talked about whether it's rule-based or whether it's prototype distortion or information integration. And yeah, you could define them if you'd like to explain them. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I guess I was curious, is it that the point of that was to just show the different ways that we acquire categories and that this is a fundamental part of, of how we interact with the world, whether it's for non-social or social categories. Uh, could you at least go into the rationale for going into those different processes of perceptual categorization? And maybe, yeah, if you'd like to explain them, you could also go ahead and do that. So yeah, that's exactly it. The point of getting into that stuff was really to explain the similarities between sort of categorizing people and categorizing other things. And so these are the three of the theories in cognitive psychology that attempt to explain how people form social categories, right? There's rule-based, which simply means I have a rule or an exemplar perhaps. And what I do is I simply apply that rule to everything I see. So I say to myself, well, um, birds are animals with wings. And so every time I see an animal, I apply the rule, does it have wings? Yes or no. And I'm able to categorize it bird or not bird. Information integration is a little different. That's sort of putting together, integrating a lot of information about a bunch of different categories. And so when I'm encountering something novel, I use that past information to make a prediction about what's likely to be this category. And then this idea of prototype distortion is I, I start with an exemplar, so it's very similar to the rule base, and then I see how well everything matched the exemplar. And so I have an idea in my head about what a woman is, 
And so I encounter someone, I compare them to this idea, my prototypical woman, and I see if that prototype, if they match that prototype or not, or the extent to which they match that prototype or not. Now, it's also interesting to think about these different approaches to categorization because researchers in social psychology have tried to use them to drive stereotype change. So they've said, well, let's start with prototype distortion. If this is really what's happening, is there a way that we can have prototype distortion so that I give you enough exemplars, for instance, of a category like African-American that are positive, and therefore it changes the prototype in your head about what that is. Or in terms of the information integration, that's essentially contact hypothesis. I give you a lot of experience with this social group so that you can learn that what they're really like is nothing like the stereotype, and you can rely on those experiences you've had. So these approaches, and again, these are just theories, right? So these theoretical approaches have been very useful for social psychology over the years in terms of informing the way we want to go about stereotype change. So I sort of reviewed them to say, well, here's where we've been, and here's some of the sort of shortcomings of that. So for instance, in the prototype distortion case, one of the shortcomings was subtyping. What we found was that, or not me, but what researchers found is that people relied, they didn't abandon the stereotype. So when I showed a businesswoman, for instance, or a woman that's sort of really competent um, or high-powered, what I did is I subtyped. Instead of getting rid of a woman and changing that prototype, I kept that prototype and I created a new one that's called businesswoman. And so businesswoman is a subtype of woman. There are some things they share, but there are some ways that they're different. So now what I do when I see someone who's high-powered and who is female is I categorize them as businesswoman instead of woman. And that allows me to preserve the stereotype woman, but it also allows me to explain this new person I've just encountered. And again, the reason I want to preserve my original stereotype is because that's culturally important, right? knowing who is male and female matters in my society. I don't want to get rid of that. So even though you've now given me all of this information in an attempt to distort that prototype, I've just done something else with it. And so using these sort of traditional approaches, these theories about how people categorize cognitively, have given us very limited success, I would say, in terms of finding ways to reduce bias, because that's what we're all after, I hope at the end of the day, right? We want to get rid of the harmful stereotypes and push people not to rely on that, to rely on the character stuff instead. Yeah, that's very powerful. And actually, I guess this leads into my next question, which is that it seems to be that one of the lines of thought here is that one of the ways that social bias arises is that you use a stereotype and it's inaccurate. Uh, Whereas if you use a trait, you will have better accuracy, presumably. So you kind of mentioned this very briefly where you say that maybe we could gather some empirical evidence on the difference in accuracy between the two. So am I correct in thinking that if we begin to rely on trait-based inferences, we will make more accurate uh, predictions of people's behavior because presumably maybe they're more local and specific to the person rather than relying on like larger groups. And then because they'll be more accurate, we'll just be less likely to misrepresent people. Is that one way to think about the distinction between the two in terms of accuracy? Yeah, I think so. That's the idea. So I think of it in terms of variance. So if I think about a stereotype that's based on a social category, there's huge variability within that social category. So if you pick your favorite social category, those people aren't alike. (laughs) They're very different human beings, right? Now, they're going to share certain things. Phenotypically, they may look similar. Culturally, they may have a similar sort of references. But in terms of who they are as human beings, they can be very different. Traits, by definition, have limited variability. That's the whole idea of personality psychology, right? So personality psychology says, I can measure something about you that's invariant, which means it doesn't change. It's going to describe you in every situation. So by definition, traits don't have that big variability around it. Somebody who's narcissistic is going to behave in a way that's much more similar to somebody else who's narcissistic, right? So that trait information reduces the variability. And that variability is basically error or noise, right? They're the thing that's going to make my prediction incorrect. So if I really want to predict somebody's behavior, it's going to be much better to know something about their traits than it is about their social categories. 
because those traits are going to be much more informative for who they are as a unique human being. And again, that's MLK's point, right? If we really want to understand the people, we can't just rely on, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? You just can't rely on what somebody looks like. You have to dig deeper. You have to know something about their personality, who they are as a human being. So I think about it in terms of variance. And there's just a lot less variance for the, the categories that are traits than for the categories that are based in social groups. Yeah. That wasn't always, that wasn't always what people believed, however. And this is really important to remember as well, because again, there's a historical context, not just for our society, but for science as well. And there was so much effort in the scientific communities centuries ago to demonstrate that people of different races were different species even, right? And so once you've taken it to the level of species, what you've done is essentialize that category. You said, by being a member of this category, there's this essence, there's this thing about you that makes you you. And that suggests that now all of you are the same, right? And so it ended up causing us to view groups as much more homogenous than they actually are. Um, and again, there were political reasons why that science was promoted at the time, et cetera. But it really does, it's a legacy that we haven't really shaken in the scientific community. Even though we really acknowledge all of that is junk science, we haven't really gotten past this essentialist idea that by belonging to the category, you now have an essence that makes you you. Because that essence suggests limited variability. But that's not true. We know that isn't true, right? You get less variability with the, with the traits. So better prediction. Yeah, you're right. That absolutely captures the, the intuition in, in MLK's very powerful speech and quote. Yeah, this makes me think of attribution theory and and the extent to which people make situational or dispositional attributions. I could think of a trade inference as sort of a dispositional attribution, but mm -hmm. combining the situational in some way. But yeah, I'm trying to, I guess, shoehorn this idea of stereotypes into this dispositional situation distinction. And I don't know whether that falls in well, uh, but maybe it's better captured by what you said as like essentializing social groups in a way that's just completely inaccurate. And whether you have any thoughts on, on that, that was just like a random thought I had. <laughs> no, I, I think you're onto something there. So yes, traits are dispositional attributions, right? They're attributions to the person. And in a, a weird way, stereotypes are as well, though not quite. Like you say, they take the context into account a little bit. And it's interesting. So for me, a lot of my research, this is where a lot of my research lived in this sort of attribution world. Mm. And it's one of the reasons I never really, studied stereotypes to be quite honest because to me stereotypes never fit within that framework very well because mm. they weren't sort of dispositional or situational attributions they were a bit of both and they didn't really help me understand when it is we make what type of attribution now we know that the dispositional attribution leads to errors as well because it fails to take into account the situation and that's the sort of counter in social psychology to personality psychology so social psychologists say well, there's nothing about you that's invariant across situations, right? If the situation is powerful enough, everybody's going to behave in a particular type of way. And so situational attributions are really important, but they're not what we tend to go to as our default as human beings, right? As human beings, we're often blind to the power of the situation, which is what allows social psychology to exist because it's a science of sort of demonstrating the power of the situation. Now, one approach is to say, well, let's try to move past dispositional attributions to situational attributions. But that's, I think, a little bit dangerous because the situation we find ourselves in, the way society is structured, is a result of these historical circumstances. So if you just relied on the situation to make inferences about people, right, they would just reinforce the historical injustices. So you would say, well, those people are poets because they're lazy, right? That's consistent with the stereotype of that category. It must be correct. So I don't argue that we should go to situational attributions because it's not like we're on a level playing field and the situation is going to reflect the historic bias. And so I, I sort of suggest that we, we push for the dispositional attribution instead because that's where you're going to get the unique human being, right? That's where you're going to get the person who is likable versus the person who's commodity, right? And that matters for your social interaction. So it's an interesting idea that what 
what I think we have to end up doing is promote the personality rather than the situation. And that's almost taboo to say as a social psychologist, right? We're not supposed to endorse personality psychology approaches. But there's something to me about that approach which seems to be more useful predicting people's behavior. And I also think it's why we have fundamental attribution errors, right? Why we go directly to the disposition. Because I think in, intuitively, as human beings, we understand not that the situation is not important, but that the person is really important in terms of who they are as a unique human being. But you have to sort of find that balance. But I stay away from the situation because of the historical injustices. So I'd like to give a chance to at least um, place this work in some context or tie it together. I know that in the article, you have a section on future research directions as well, where you tie it to other work you've done, for example, on dehumanization, which you've, you have done lots of fantastic work on that. You also talk about generalizability claims, for example, whether this would apply to weird societies and the fact that in other societies, race may not necessarily be like the dominant category that people use to think about people. Yeah, same, like growing up in Africa. I don't think that race was that well used compared to like other markers of, of say, social class or status or, or say like someone's tribe was also a thing. So that was really interesting to see brought up. Yeah, putting it in the broader context. I think, so I think I've always had an advantage not being American because I grew up in a society that didn't quite work in that way. So I didn't assume it to be the default and science is dominated by America. And so these ways of thinking end up being the ways we've attributed to all human beings when they're not necessarily like that. So in my society in the Caribbean, status was all that mattered, social class, like you said. And we knew people had different races, but it was a very multiracial society and a genuine one, not a segregated one, where people intermixed all of the time. Because race didn't really have that power. Class did, right? How much money do you have? That's what mattered. Um, and so having that reference point really was interesting because when I came to the U.S. for the first time and race suddenly started to matter, it was quite a shock, quite a culture shock. And it took me a while to sort of get the hang of, okay, you need to avoid the police and blah, 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 and all of the cultural mores that determine how you operate in that society. And so I've always kind of had these ideas, but they weren't really reflected in the literature. So Part of it was trying to explain not just American society, but all society. And since I've left the U.S., I've lived in a couple of different countries, and they all have different things that they used to categorize, right? For instance, here in the U.K., there's a strong um, anti-Eastern European bias, and that's determined by accent. So you can't really look at people and tell. You have to wait for them to open their mouths, and then you know, and then people categorize and behavior change. So there are all of these different ways that social categories matter. What, what is a human universal is that social categories matter. And so this idea that I've proposed isn't just something I think can be useful in the American context. I think it matters for all contexts where, again, social categories matter because we're human beings and, and we're living in, in much bigger groups than we should. So it's really interesting to, to think about it in that broader context because what it suggests is that there are ways of thinking about people that we haven't really tapped into. And what I'm, I'm hoping is that we can begin finding ways to tap into those, those ways of thinking about people. Now, how do you do that is a, a really difficult question and one I don't really have an answer for. But I think it might be a path forward. And in fact, since I've sort of done this theorizing and shared it with other researchers, some collaborators and I have started imagining ways that could happen um, in different situations, right? Imagining ways of changing bias where you don't even need to talk about social bias and social categories because that's not the only way you can see a human being. And if you make these other ways more salient or value, then people aren't going to stereotype, right? They're going to go beyond that because they're always going to do what's sort of valued in that context or that situation. So um, with Greg Walton at Stanford and Jason Okunofua, um, at Berkeley, we've sort of recently theorized about a sidelining bias approach that basically tries to do that, to make the context such that what's salient isn't the person's social category, but some other aspect about them that you value in that situation. 
Now, I think that's possible. I Again, I don't know how to do it, where societies now do that by default, because again, social groups matter so much in all societies, whether they're racial, religious, ethnic, tribal, class. There's always an ism everywhere. So I, I don't know how to get rid of the isms, but I do know that we have the capacity to because our brains allow us to, right? They allow us to think about people as, as unique individuals. So I think there's a path forward. I just think we need more research to, to sort of flesh it out. So a lot of research has to focus instead, instead of focusing on how do I reduce bias and, and train it out of people, which I don't think is possible. I think it has to focus instead on how do we promote these the content of character approach, right? How do we do that in our media, which is the, the main learning mechanism where stereotypes get reinforced? How do we do that in our school systems where we teach children how to think about other people and talk about other people? We're having that reckoning now with the um, transgender community where the concept of male and female is being challenged in a way it never has before. And it's causing us to start thinking differently about those categories. So if I see someone that presents as female, I know I'm not supposed to think that person is female, right? I have to check and, and see how they view themselves. And that's a massive step forward. So how do we make that a default for all categories is the question. And I don't have that answer, but I know it's possible. I have a dream as well. <laughs> right? Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. So Dr. Harris, as we approach the end of the talk, we have two final questions that we ask all of our guests because a lot of our listeners are either trainees in psychology, in graduate school, or people who are just interested in getting into the field. So the first question is, how do you know that an idea is worth pursuing? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. I think I know an idea is worth pursuing if I can't get rid of it. So for me, that I have tons of ideas all of the time. So, and if you're interested in psychology, that's natural, right? Humans are constantly behaving around you. It's a rich source of ideas. And sometimes an idea will come and it will go away and it will never come back. And so you don't end up pursuing it. But some ideas will stick with you and sort of persist. And that's when I know I need to pay attention. So if I've thought about something and I've thought about it again, that idea kind of incubates for a little bit. And now I know, yes, there's really something here worth sort of going after. So I don't rely on the literature for my ideas. I don't read papers and think, oh, I should go do a study just like this. That's never really been my approach. I end up looking at the literature after I've had the idea to help refine it. So I say, okay, I've, I've thought about this thing a lot, either because of some anecdotal thing I've seen, some experience I've had. And again, we're human, so we're going to rely on our experiences. Is, is there anything in the literature on this? What have people said about it? And sometimes you, there's nothing, and that's really exciting. That's really when you know you need to pursue your idea. Now, it could be nothing because no one has gotten it to work, and so those studies have never been published. Or it could be that no one has thought about that idea before. But if I have an idea and it goes away and it doesn't come back, it's not worth pursuing. So if it persists, then I think there's something here. That's a fantastic answer. I know recently I, I was thinking about scientists as creatives or artists where you have some sort of muse or you have something that presses you that you need to put out there and writing papers and doing research is, is the way that you do that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So the second question is, what is your advice for young scholars entering psychology? Yeah. Um, don't give up. It's <laughs> the first thing. I, it's hard. It's hard for everybody. Um, academia is a very close shop. Um, and it has been a close shop since it existed. And it's even worse if you belong to a minority category in whatever society you're in. It's a place where you get tons of rejections constantly and tons of criticisms constantly. And you have to get accustomed to rejection and criticism. And sometimes it's valid, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's coming from a place of concern where somebody's trying to help you improve. And sometimes it's people reacting to their biases and their stereotypes. Sometimes it's just commodity people because academics are weird. So you have to be able to sift through all of that negative energy, let's say, and, and really persist. And that's very difficult to do. I think, um, I don't know how people do it. I don't know how I do it, but it's the toughest part. So knowing that it's not just your experience helps, knowing that everybody has this experience. 
Um, social comparison is a problem. We can't help do it as human beings, but looking around at what other people are doing and what accolades they're winning or grants they're winning or where they're publishing is a death sentence. Um, it can be very demotivating to do that because perhaps your research isn't going to end up in those places, or at least not right now, right? I think the true test of research is does it last over time? It's not whether you publish now or who funds it or what job it gets you. It's 10 years, 20 years from now, people still talking about it, citing it. And you don't have that foresight in the moment. So you can do something that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention, doesn't get you a job, nobody funds it. And you think, well, this isn't worth doing. So you have to have that kind of self-belief where you just persist. And that leads me to the, the last bit of advice, which is to just do you, right? As a unique human being, you have a set of experiences that are going to make you uniquely positioned to go after certain questions. Because only you are going to put those puzzle pieces together and have those ideas, right? Like I talked about the advantage I had growing up in the Caribbean, right? That allowed me to see things very differently than other people would have. So if you just do what you think is right, what you think is best, and sometimes you don't know what that is, but you just have this intuition, then I think that's the way to go. So don't give up, do you. And, and lastly, I say make friends. Not lifelong friends, but collaborate broadly. Talk to lots of people. I think academics are very secretive of their ideas because we're all so used to being criticized. We tend not to put it out there because we know criticism is going to come back. But you have to sort of get past that fear and share your ideas with other people because they will help mold and shape your ideas and drive it forward as well. So even though a lot of criticism is negative, I sort of embrace it because there might be something in there that thinks about my idea in a way I haven't thought about it before. And that's really the crucial piece that's going to push me forward. So by talking to lots of people, collaborating, sharing your ideas, it really helps you as well. But again, it's really difficult to do. So it's not for everybody, but if you decide that's what you want to do, I think it's worth it. It's a wonderful existence to be able to study these kinds of things that are just super interesting to you. And so I encourage everybody to, to get into psychology if you love it, if you're interested in people. To me, people are fascinating. They're the most interesting thing in the universe, right? Like human beings are fascinating. So if you have that passion for it, go ahead and study them and see where it takes you because you end up places you might not have thought you would be. Thank you. Those are some brilliant gems. And I think this is a perfect position or level to end the conversation. So thank you very, very much, Dr. Harris, for this fantastic conversation, for your wonderful insights. I hope this is going to be useful to our listeners. Uh, it's been very useful to me. Thanks for having me. It was really um, interesting to chat about it. So good luck with the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. If you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics of the podcast, you can click on a link on the survey attached to the show notes, or you can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect to us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. And finally, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or elsewhere so people can find us. Thank you so much.